Amen. Thank you. Well, it's really clear that Jesus tells us that we should pray. He gives us every encouragement to pray. He tells us that we should pray persistently. But how do we pray? And for what do we pray? Uh, these are a little more different, uh, difficult. Jesus says, ask anything. We'll come to his word this morning. We're in John chapter 14, verses 7 through 14. Jesus again encourages prayer, encourages us to pray, encourages us to pray for anything. So hear then the word of God, starting in verse 7 of John 14. Jesus says, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and it would be enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and still you do not know me? Philip, whoever has seen the Father, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The, the words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on the account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Pray with me. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, we would come and sit at your feet and we would learn of you. How oh, would you speak these words into our hearts and into our lives with power? Would you teach us to pray? For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus says, whatever you pray for, I will give it to you. Ask for anything and I will do it. This is one of the most misunderstood and most misapplied passages in the Bible. It's one of those that is very easy to take and do all kinds of things with it. Anything you say, <laughs> anything you say, a bigger house would be nice, a manicured lawn would be nice, always wanted a beamer, one of those cars with a large feline leaping off the hood, you know, a Jaguar. Anything you say, expensive clothes, you know, we start, we start thinking like we won the lottery or something, right? Because those are the dreams you have when you, win, you, know, you think you might win the lottery. You start, you know, their whole church is built on that kind of thinking. Whole churches and ministries built around this idea that God wants you to be rich and you should ask for anything. You know what? It is your God-given right as a child of God. He wants you. To be rich, to be wealthy. And because it's your right, and because it's your God given right as a child, you should pray for it and you should pursue it with faith and expectation. It's an American gospel. It's a harder sell in the rice fields of India, it's a harder sell in the rural, uh, you know, China. It's a harder sell in sub-Saharan Africa, but in America, this sells very well. 
In America, this works pretty good. We have this secular American belief in upward mobility and, and the American dream and that this is, you know, this is our manifest destiny. This is what God wants for you. And so they come to a passage like this and it feels like a blank check. <laughs> you fill in the amount. Blank check to indulge our greed and our materialism and our worldliness. The baser aspects of our motives and the things that lurk in the deep places of our hearts. But here's the thing. The Bible is not a collection of individual independent verses that you can take and interpret and use willy-nilly. Can you say willy-nilly? You know what I mean when I say willy-nilly? You, you can't do whatever you want with it. Jesus doesn't give one-liners. You know, here's a one-liner. Take that and go think about it and make it mean what you want. And here's another one-liner. Verse 8 is another one-liner. Verse 10 is another one-liner. It's not like that. There's a context. Jesus is saying something, right, in, in, in the course of it, just like I am. You can take any one of my sentences now and go do, you know, take me out of context, and who knows what you'll come up with. But I'm not. I'm making a point, and I hope you hear the whole point, you know, before so you can understand the one-liners. The Scripture must interpret Scripture. You know, there are three <clears throat> great rules of interpretation. The first great rule, when you come to the Bible and understanding it, we call it interpretation. The first great rule of interpretation is context. What did he just say before he said that? What does he say after he said that? You know, the context. What, what's in the paragraph before and the paragraph after? <clears throat> what's in this? <clears throat> excuse me, it's going to happen every week. Uh, what, what's, what's in that whole chapter? What, what's in the flow of the book of John that he's, that when he gets to this point? It's, it's in the whole context of all of his teaching in his life. You can't just take it willy-nilly and make it contradict something else Jesus said. Or make it contradict the context of the new te- teaching of the New Testament. You can't take Scripture as a symphony, and it's harmonious. And you can't play Scripture against Scripture. Scripture interprets Scripture, and they have to harmonize. So what does the New Testament say about pursuing wealth as a life goal, as a God-given right? Well, there in your bulletin under the first point, I put a lengthy passage out of 1 Timothy. Paul says this, By the same Spirit that inspires Jesus... Godliness with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing into the world and you can't take anything out of the world. But if we have food and we have clothing with these, we would be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. They fall into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires. It plunges people even into ruin and destruction for the love of money is at the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving, greed, that some have wandered away from the faith and they've pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, or as for you, O woman of God, flee these things. Run in the other direction. Pursue righteousness. Godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. These are the riches of God for the people of God. Pursue them. 
Jesus warns us, you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and that Greek word mammon, which literally means wealth. It's money and everything money can buy. Jaguars and and big houses. And you can't serve God and mammon. You must choose your master. You will love the one and hate the other. Or you will hate the one and love and serve the other. We must. Jesus and Paul both say, pursue the kingdom of God. Pursue his righteousness and all the blessing will be added to you. Greed is a bad motive for living. Greed and wealth complicate the human heart. And now I've got to make my caveat. It's not wrong to be wealthy. It's not wrong to make a lot of money. It's not wrong to have a lot of money. <clears throat> Jesus is very clear, and a lot of people misquote that text, and they say <clears throat> that money is the root of all evil. But Jesus, and Paul doesn't say that. <clears throat> he says, the love of money is the root of all evil. It's going to be a weekly ritual. I used to start up here, put a drinking fountain in the pulpit, and then I can just, you know, excuse me. I, don't, I think it's the beginning of allergy season again. It's not wrong to have money. It's the love of money. It's, it's the lust for money. It's the over-desire for money. It's like, I'll throw some out there and you do with them what you will, like alcohol. I don't believe it's wrong to drink alcohol. I believe it's wrong to get drunk. Right? It's a lust for alcohol. It's the overindulgence. It's greed. Right? It's, sex is not wrong. In fact, it's good. God created it. <clears throat> but outside the bounds of marriage, it is very wrong. Right? In other words, greed. Over-desire for it. Over-outside the bounds. Food is good. God created We need to eat food. But greed, gluttony. You know, too much, too much of anything. You know, the over-desire for anything is, is what's wrong. If you're wealthy, if God has given you the ability to make a lot of money, the Lord can use you to bless and to support his kingdom. And I believe that's exactly what he does. Because, because the work of God in the world, he owns a thousand on a cat, uh, the cattle on a thousand hills. And I believe that God, out of his abundance gives us to be stewards of his abundance and wealth. And if God has given us great abundance, he's given us great opportunity. Right there in your bulletin under the first point, Luke 12, Jesus says, everyone to whom much is given, of him much will be required. To some, much is given. He says, but there's a stewardship with that. In other words, abundance or wealth is a responsibility. It's a responsibility. And to whom much is given, much is required. And, and so it's this responsibility, and like many responsibility, it's fraught with temptation and it's fraught with dangers, you know, that are associated with it. And, and so the Bible consistently warns us to protect our hearts against the love of money and, and greed and overindulgence and to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So just like we can keep sex in its proper bound and the use of food in its proper bounds and this, and this use and desire for money in the proper bounds, which means it's a, it's, it's, it's a stewardship. Everything is to pursue First, the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Even the wealth he has given me comes underneath that in the pursuit of his kingdom and his righteousness and it becomes part of it, not some separate Disney world. Any teaching that appeals to the lust of material greed 
as a basis for its ministry, encourages the desire to be rich, is the very opposite of what the Scripture teaches us. Let's look at this promise then in context, because this is how you handle most of the kind, these kind of teachings, which is a, take a one-liner and build a ministry on it. What is Jesus saying here? Let's look at Jesus' logic. Jesus is the smartest guy that ever lived. He makes a lot of sense. And so you have to seek to understand him, to spend a little time with him. So we look in, in, in the passage I just read, in verses 7 to 11, Jesus is laboring to help his disciples, laboring to help us see the unity the relationship that exists between the Father and the Son. He wants us to see the relationship that He has. Right? We called, you could call this in Jesus' ministry Trinitarian Theology 101. We know that when, in, in the incarnation of Christ, the Son of God, when the Son of God became man, the Son of Man, there was, that's a revelation about the very nature of God Himself. We've learned, we learn something about who God is. Because the word that was in the beginning, the word that was with God and was God, became flesh and he dwelt among us and we have seen his glory and we see something about who God is. The word is with God but he's, and he is God, but the, the word is not the father. the father. The son is not the father. The father is not the son. He's with God and he is God. And so we, it's Trinitarian Theology 101. And so we see in verse 7, Jesus says, right, if you had known me, you guys, you would know my father also. <laughs> if you know me, you know the father. And from now on, you do know him. Right? Get it in your head. From now on, because you know me, you do know the Father. And so in verse 8, Philip expresses their confusion. Lord, show us the Father. It will be enough for us. And you know, and you got to give it to these guys. You and I have the benefit of a couple of millennia of written Bible reflection, mature reflection, teaching to absorb and to learn these truths. Jesus is on the fly with these guys, redefining their whole doctrine of God. He's redefining their doctrine of God. Philip, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. This is hard for them. This This is Jesus taking them into the fellowship of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit from all eternity. And, the, and most of the rest of this uh, sermon in the upper room with the disciples is about the, the work and the power of the Holy Spirit. So in verse 8, he expresses his confusion and Jesus goes on and he says, Listen up, Philip, have I been with you so long? You don't know me, Philip? Listen up. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So don't say, show me the Father. You've seen the Father in the Son. In verse 10, he goes on and he says that, Do you not believe that I'm in the Father, and the Father is in me, and the words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority. They're the, they're the, the Father's words, the Father who, who speaks, who dwells in me and speaks and enables me to do his works. I do the words, I say the words of the Father. I do the works of the Father. I am, verse 11, do you not understand? I am in the Father, and the Father is in me which theologians have come to call a mutual indwelling. I'm in him, and he's in me, 
We have this mutual indwelling. And Jesus is laboring, right? He's working hard to help the disciples understand his relationship with the Father. He wants them to see that everything that he has done, that everything that he is in his words, in the holy life that he lived, in the works that he did of of miracles and wonders, healing, delivering, Jesus wants them to see everything I have done and accomplished has been in 100% harmony and unity with the Father, as though the Father himself were doing the works in the world, so that when you see my life and character, when you see my works in ministry, you have seen the Father. It's that tight. I say nothing but the Father's words. I do nothing but the Father's work. This is so important because in verse 12, I want you to see it, he shifts focus a little bit. In verse 12, then, he says, okay, based on all this that he's saying, and he starts it with truly, truly, which is like, listen up. Here it is. Truly, truth, truth. Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and even greater works than these. He will do because I am going to the Father. I am going to the Father and you're going to keep working. Right? See, this is the thing. Here's what I've been doing. Only what the Father wants me to do. I've been in the will of God doing all the works that He's... Now, I'm going to the Father. You're not. You are going to do my works. You are going to carry on my ministry. You are going to press forward. I'm leaving. You're staying. And now just as the Father worked in and through me, I will work in and through you. Right in John 14, 20, just a little bit down in the passage, further down, Jesus in verse 20, it's a verse I memorized as a young believer. It is so cool, <laughs> right? He says, in that day, the day is coming very soon when all this ministry stuff's going to happen. In that day, you will realize, you will wake up to the fact, you will realize that I am in the Father and that you are in me and that I am in you. I, I'm in the Father, the Father's in me, and the day is coming when you're going to wake up to the fact that I am in you and you are in me. And I'm in the Father. And there is a relationship that is, that is, that is coming into being. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and even greater works than these. He will carry on. And he says, even greater works. What are greater works than Jesus? Jesus raised a man from the dead. What are you going to do? Top that one. What are you talking about? I'm going to raise three men, four men. He raised a few. He raised the, the child and the, the widow's son. And so I'm gonna, how many do I have to raise to beat Jesus? Right? When Jesus is talking about his words and his works here, Jesus in his three years ministry established a little church. He had 12 disciples and some hangers on. I don't know, 120 in the upper room. It was a pretty good work for a few years. 
But I think what he is saying in terms of his works and his ministry and, and what he started being carried forward, he's, I think he tells them, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And you, you guys, it's going to span the four corners of the globe. This thing that started as the smallest seed in the garden is going to grow into the largest tree that, you know, that, that the kingdom of God begins small and it grows big. And, and you've seen... You've seen the crowds gather to me. Wait, wait until you go in my name. And then he says, whatever you ask, I will do. Ask anything in my name and I will do it. Do you see the logic? Father empowered my works and my words and my whole my whole life and my ministry and I'm going to the Father, but you will continue my work and, and I will empower your ministry just as the Father empowered my ministry. Now let me ask you, what is Jesus encouraging us to ask him? Can you see fitting in right here? Bigger house. Uh, nicer clothes, Jesus. It's been nice these few years with you, but a little dusty. You know, my sandals are a little worn. Could use some uh, penny loafers. Is this an invitation? At this moment, is this an invitation to indulge selfish and worldly desires for pleasure and comfort and wealth? Like... Can't you see in the logic of Jesus' teaching here almost how gross it is? How out of spirit it is with what Jesus is saying? It feels yucky to start thinking like that. It, it, you know, it's, it's wrong to start thinking like that. Are these the greater works than Jesus that we will do? You had no place to lay your head. The Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head, but I'm going to have a million-dollar mansion. You know, is this the greater works? Jesus, you wandered homeless, and I get a big one. You know, is that what he's talking about? I was homeless so you could be wealthy and and live high on the hog. Can you name one work that Jesus did for his own advantage? Even his health. After 40 days of fasting, and he was literally starving. Don't eat for five days. See how that feels. 40 days, he's tempted to turn stones into bread, and he refuses. He's being arrested and beaten and tortured and crucified, and he says to Pilate in the course of it, I have tens of thousands of legions of angels at my disposal that I could call upon at my whim, and he does not. Why? Because Jesus was doing something. The will of God. That's what motivates everything Jesus does. His words are the words of the Father. His works are the works of the Father. If you've seen me, you've even seen the Father. His will is my will. My will is his will. Jesus is about the Father's will. And the things he doesn't do, he does because he's doing the Father's will. It was God's will that he should die on that cross. That he should bear our sin in his own body on the cross. That he would deliver us from the, the guilt and the penalty of our sin and from its power over us and to deliver us into a life that is pleasing to God now and forever. 
And how did Jesus pray about his suffering? What was his attitude? We see him in the Garden of Gethsemane in the midst of his suffering. How? What was his attitude toward it? Name it and claim it. You know, health and wealth. No, you don't. You know, you've got better things for me than this. Right? His prayer is this. Father, not my will. But today, like every other day of my life, your will. Do your will. Accomplish your will. Jesus' passion in his entire life, we get a glimpse at the age of 12 where I must be about my father's business. I mean, do you see it at the age of 12? You know, as an adult, Jesus in ministry, I must be about the father's business, Right? His passion is to honor and to serve the will of God. You see it in Paul. It's here. I don't, well, I don't think it made your bulletin. Uh, in the second point, he says, Philippians 1.20, Paul says, My eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed, but that I will have full courage now as always. What is now, Paul? In Philippians, Paul's in prison. He's been beaten and locked up, and he is, thinks he might be executed at the end of this. And his prayer, what does he say? My hope, my expectation is this. That now, as always, Christ would be honored in my body, whether by life or whether by death. He doesn't claim life. as his God-given right as a child of God that I shouldn't be in prison and that I should abound. Right? His, his, his prayer is that he would honor Christ no matter what happened. Let's look at the New Testament, the greater context. John wrote this gospel, but he also wrote three letters. In the first letter that he wrote, he reflects on this statement of Jesus. This did make your bulletin. Second point, he writes this. 1 John chapter 5, same guy, John, he says this. This is the confidence that we have toward him, toward Jesus. That if we ask anything in according to his will, he hears us. Right? This is what John heard Jesus say. And what I'm saying is, if you read what Jesus said in context, it ought to be what you're hearing too. We, we don't even need John's reflection here to tell us that this is what he's talking about. If we ask, and here's the confidence, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. It makes perfect sense. The very definition of a bad parent is to give their child anything they ask for. You know, the very definition of almost child abuse. Think of the list of things children ask for. And if you're practiced, I'll do it. Day in, day out. And then they figure out that that's what you'll do. Just see where it goes. But when the request of the child coincides with the good will and wisdom of the parent, good things happen. In John chapter 7, verse 17, this is under your final point there, Jesus, just a few chapters ago, said this, If anyone's will is to do God's will, right? If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking of my own authority. Right? He says, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will see and understand the truth. Right? He'll be able to, he'll, he'll see straight. 
Right? When your will aligns with God's will, you begin to see straight and you'd be able to see true. And until our will is to do his will, we can't quite see straight. And I would suggest we cannot pray straight either. If anyone's will is to do the will of God, he will be heard and answered You know, when, when our will is to do his will. But we cannot pray straight. We cannot ask rightly until our will is bent to do his will. Yeah, I just said it. You're probably thinking, did he just say you can pray wrongly? You can pray wrong? Like you're wrong praying? You, you can absolutely. And I say, let Scripture interpret Scripture. And it's there in your bulletin. James chapter 4. He is, he is writing to this church that has some conflict, and he says, you're asking, but you're not receiving. Because you ask wrongly. Because you're doing it wrong. Your motives are wrong. You're asking for the wrong stuff. Right? He says you're asking, you're not receiving. Jesus is not giving you whatever you ask. Right? He's not. And he says the reason is you're asking wrong. Well, what's wrong with what I'm asking? Well, he says because you ask to spend it on your own passion. You see again how the teaching of Scripture just slaps that kind of teaching in the face. Wrong praying, as explicit as the Scripture can say it to us, is to ask and to seek personal, greedy endeavors. To spend it on ourselves. When greed and selfish desires motivate our praying, he says, God will not answer. And any ministry that encourages this kind of praying to spend it on your own desires is perverse. Jesus says, when it comes to my work in my kingdom and the will of God, you can ask anything and I will answer. We have the mind of Christ. The will of God is poured out for us abundantly in the pages of Scripture. Like he has, Jesus has revealed the Father in his own life, in his words, in his life, in his works. And, and, and the will of God is poured out for us here. The heart of God is revealed. The promises of God are laid out. The kingdom purposes of God in the world are laid out. Do you remember Jesus? The disciples asked him. Jesus, teach us to pray. Because we see you praying and we see the answers. We see you in the Father and the Father in you. Like we see, we see answers to prayer. Jesus, we want to see answers to prayer. Teach us to pray like you pray. And he said, okay, all right, pray like this. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. That's how you pray. Right? That's the beginning of prayer, the will of God. And then when it concerns our material, what does he say? Give us this day our daily bread. Meet our basic needs. Forgive, forgive us our debts and our trespasses and lead us not into temptation. Do You see, Jesus has taught us to pray. And the will of God stands right at the heart of it. Thy kingdom, thy will. This is Jesus' heart here and everywhere in Scripture. And so we pray these things that Scripture prays. Pray the fruit of the Spirit. You want to know what to pray for? That Jesus says, ask 
any of it, and I will answer it. Go to the pages of Scripture. Pray for the fruit of the Spirit. Pray that you would be, that, that you would be re, in the image of Christ and of God, that you would be love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. These are according to the will of God. And he says, you ask like that and I will answer you. Or as I put one of them in there, there's two of them that explicitly stay. At 1 Thessalonians 5.18, he says, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Ask for the grace of God. Right? The, the empowerment of God the Holy Spirit to give thanks in every circumstances. Because I know this is the will of God, and He will hear. Or 1 Thessalonians 4.3, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Oh, fight the good fight. Begin to ask of God. It, it is explicitly His will that you would be sanctified and delivered from that bondage. Pray for His grace and power to love your wife as Christ loved His church. That is according to the will of God. Pray for the courage and the wisdom and the opportunity to share your faith in Christ because that is the will of God, that you would be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea. Here it is. Jesus was so full of the Father that he spoke his words, that he did his works, that you could look at his life, his character, and get a glimpse of God. His heart was so aligned, his will was so aligned, he always did the Father's will. If any man's will is to do the Father's will. Jesus says, I'm going to the Father. I am returning to the throne of power as your advocate and your Savior. I go before you to prepare a place for you. I go before you to intercede for you. I ever live to intercede in the presence of God for you. And then he invites us. To be as full of him. On that day you will realize. You will awaken to the fact that I am in the Father. And you are in me. And I am in you. And he invites us to be as full of him as he was of the Father. And as full of his will as he was of the Father's will. That we would delight to do his will. You know James in those couple of verses in James 4. Where he says you ask and you don't receive because you're doing it wrong. At the same place, he says this. You do not have because you do not ask. You don't have because you don't ask. I long for us to learn how to pray. I long to learn how to pray. To begin assailing the throne of power, asking and seeking and knocking. That thy will would be done in my life and in my character and in my marriage and in my work and in my attitudes and in my witness and in everything else. That we would begin to ask and seek and knock and he will give us whatever we ask. Do you not know that whatever you ask in Jesus' name, he says, I will do it. Let us ask. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we long to be like Jesus. I pray that even as you reveal the heart of Jesus in this passage, in this call to prayer, oh, it is a call to prayer. Would we hear this call, Father? 
awaken us to the fact that we are in Christ and that Christ is in us and that, that the work that He was doing, you call us to advance. That we would live passionately to do Your will and that our prayers would be full of it. Oh, help us. Teach us to pray. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. As we close, I would invite us to lift our eyes. At the heart of this whole thing is Jesus' vision of the Father who lived in Him and worked in His life. Behold, stand and behold our God.